The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. All right. Now, last week uh, we went through the... Well, let me review. Start from the top of your outline, week number five. We're reviewing what does the Bible teach regarding the nature of God. We've learned so far about the biblical teaching regarding monotheism. The Bible teaches monotheism, that there is only one God. So we are not polytheists, we are monotheists. There's only one God. We've learned so far the biblical teaching regarding the Father. The, ba Father, the Bible teaches that the Father is a person distinct from the Son and distinct from the Holy Spirit. So they're not all the same person. There's one God, one substance, Three persons sharing that one substance. The Father is distinct from the Son and the Spirit. And we learned that the Father is called God, Hatheos. We also have learned that the, the biblical teaching regarding the Son. We learned that the Bible teaches that the Son is a person distinct from the Father and the Spirit. And we learned that the Son is classified as God. And last week, we learned we looked at eight passages that present Jesus as God. I never had a chance to have a time for questions, so I want to begin today's session by opening up for any questions you have regarding last week's lesson on those eight passages. Are there any questions you've been percolating all week on what we learned last week, or will we jump into this week's lesson? I'm happy to answer any questions you have. None? Two gods. Yeah. Two gods? No. One God. I said Jesus is God. He's divine and the Father is divine. But the Bible says there is one God. So there's one substance. Think of it this way. Um, think of this. This green represents the substance, the nature of God. And so we have the Father. We have the Son. And we have the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we have the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're all sharing the same substance. Your substance is you are a spirit as a person. You know, you think of those in those sense. In that sense, you... Uh, I am a spirit, I live in a body. So essentially I am a spirit. And there's the rule of thumb for human beings is one person per spirit. The substance is spirit and there's only one person, one mind per spirit. One self-aware mind per spirit. That's the rule of thumb for humans. You can't say, hi, I'm Martin and I have two persons living within me. No, Martin is one person. Okay? One person per spirit. Well, God is spirit. He's substance, is spirit. But... He's different. God is three persons, three minds, sharing the same spirit, the same substance. How many gods are there? There's one God. But that one God supports three persons. And they're all distinct from one another. But they are one God. That's what we've learned so far. Yes, Martin. Go, can you yell it out or go to a mic so people on the podcast can hear it? Seems awkward, you're four feet from me, now I to walk 20 feet from me, but... So my question... I don't know if this is on. My question is, um, when Jesus died on the cross, the last thing he shouted was, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. <laughs> so 
what if he, he forgave sins himself? Mm -hmm. So why didn't he say, I forgive you guys because you don't know what you're doing? Or Father and Holy involve the Holy Spirit. Well, I, I don't think that... The, they don't all have to be named to be, in, to be involved, per se. But at that moment, he was, uh, the Father sent him. Again, the Son submitted himself to the Father while on the earth. So he, in submission, he was saying, this is happening to me, Father. And, and it was probably as much for our benefit as, as anything. So we would hear, it would be recorded. We would now know and realize today the attitude of the Son at that moment. And so he's simply saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So I acknowledge, Father, that in his humanity, I acknowledge, Father, that uh, what they've done is a sin against me, but I do not hold them personally responsibility for this specific act at this moment. So it was his declaration to the Father. Have to go to the microphone, John. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, this may sound like a stupid question. If it feels stupid, then throw me up. No such uh, thing as a stupid question. <laughs> uh, when we started this, um, I'm somewhat confused. So when we started this, it was going to be seven weeks. Okay, Have we now learned what we were supposed to learn in that period of time, or is it going to be extended? No, we're still going to go seven weeks. Next week, we'll go on to the Holy Spirit. And then we'll sum up. But this is this is the six week. This is week five. five. It's only five. Yeah. <laughs> you really are confused, John. <laughs> Any other questions about last week? Yes. Go ahead. Oh, Don, and then Bob. Oh, you're just putting the leg back. Okay, Sai. Darren, I have no problem with. The um, concept that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. Um, but one substance. Yes. Sorry? They're one substance, three persons. Right. Right. In Hebrews 5.5, 5, um, it says, Today I have begotten thee. <laughs> it almost implies that there was something before where he was not begotten. Except John talks about the Son, the, the, the begotten Son in the bosom of the Father. So I, I think, again, context means everything. So it's quoting an Old Testament verse. Um, so today in the sense of his, I'm sure, in the sense of his uh, humanity, he's applying it um, in the sense perhaps of his humanity, or even it says today is the day of salvation. What does that mean? I means right now, at this moment, it's always the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. So we, the context, I think, is crucial. Um, so today begotten thee, today is the day of salvation. It, it can mean so many things within the context. But uh, so that's what I would say at, at that. Uh, we, you have to blend that with other uh, scriptures that talk about how Jesus always was. So he, uh, he's not a created thing. Colossians is pretty clear about that. Yes, over here. Question. Um, so uh, the word theos and the word Elohim, mm -hmm. is this Yeah, you're on. We can hear you. Go ahead. The word theos, the word Elohim. Yep. Is that a title or a name? Depends on the context. It's both. 
Elohim can be used in many ways. Elohim means, is really plural for gods, and it can be used of, in the past, they've both been used of humans, they've both been used of angels, uh, they've used of uh, individuals. Um, so the context is everything. Okay, yeah, it's a Hebrew word, yeah. yeah. Theos is the Greek word. Yeah, right. And so, um, but Moses said, but what should I say your name is? Mm -hmm. So the name of the Elohim of Abraham and the Elohim of Jesus as well is Yahweh. So um, the, the name, when, when God says in Isaiah, um, I created the world all by myself, you said there's three selves. So which self is it that created the world there? They all did. To one substance, one God. All three persons, I'm sure, were involved. In fact, we're going to get to that in our very last day. We're going to talk about they are so united that when one does something, they can all be said to have done it. Because you can see in Scripture where it says the Father raised the Son from the dead, Jesus raised, the Holy Spirit raised. Well, who did it? Well, they all did. And... Um, I have a, I did a study, I did have a list of at least 10 passages that show how it was very common in scripture, like, um, like who wrestled with Jacob, for instance? God. Okay. Is an angel of the Lord, a theophany perhaps, where God would sometimes take on physical form in the Old Testament, not incarnation, but like a physical temporary form, angelic appearance? I mean, yeah, so one scripture says God. Mm -hmm. Another scripture says an angel. Another yeah, angel of the Lord, yeah. Another one even says man. Yeah. So, um, there, there, Well, Israel means he wrestles with God, so it's kind of yeah. pretty clear what, who it yeah, was. Yeah. yeah. But, um... So is there a question here? <laughs> yeah, well, um, how come it's just assumed that if, if somebody represents God, that they, you have to call them... God, but it was acceptable to call somebody who represented Yahweh um, as, as the one who sent them. And so I've, I've a list of 10 scriptures at least mm -hmm. that show that, that pattern in scripture where um, the one who sent the person and the person that came, they referred to that person as, as if he was the one that sent him. And so it was common in that time to uh, call the, the direct authoritative agent, like an angel, Yahweh. Okay, so your question is, why is that, you're saying so, does that apply to Jesus? Why is that not considered as a contextual, historical, uh, cultural context? Okay. Okay, that's a good question. Yeah. It is considered as a cultural, contextual context, and when it applies to Jesus, it does not apply, because Jesus... I'll explain that. Because uh, it's, it's more than just a title when it's speaking of Jesus, because then the New Testament writers fill in all the rest of the character. If you look at work weeks three and four, it's not just a title, but actually then um, the, the qualities of the king or of the God. So I could be a representative of Stephen Harper, but 
I am not Stephen Harper. I don't have his same characteristics and attributes, but Jesus is given the identical attributes and said has the divine nature of God. So it's more than a title. He just doesn't have the title. He has the actual nature that that title represents. We've made that clear over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So you can't have the nature of something and not be that. Well, he was filled with the nature. No, it doesn't say he was filled with the nature. No, no, it doesn't. Dwayne, we're not going to do this. It doesn't say he was filled with the nature. It says, who being in very nature God. It doesn't say who filled with the nature, like a, a water fills a cup. In fact, we're going to learn this today. So s- stick with that. Is yeah. Jesus just a human being who is filled with God like you are filled with the Spirit? No, that's not the option Scripture gives. Okay. One, another question? Microphone. Yeah, you have to speak into it, Don, not just stand in front of it. <laughs> Yeah. Is there anywhere in the Old Testament, I haven't found yeah. it, but, but I haven't researched it that yeah. well, but were there references of the Son of God? Uh, off the top of my head, uh, I haven't, I couldn't tell you. The Son of Man, yes. The Son of Man title, who is this sovereign, semi-deist God, you know, being who is worshipped and given all authority. That's the title Jesus chose for himself. But Son of God, there were lots of people called sons of God, but what the New Testament refers to is, no, he is the only begotten. Remember, we learned last week, the one and only son. There's a unique, literally the unique son, the one of its kind son. So he's not just a son, he is the son. It's the difference with Jesus. Good stuff. Go to the microphone. This is good stuff. I hope this is not a stupid question. No such thing. I, I have a question. Uh, you just say that uh, they are three persons in one substance, right? Three persons sharing one substance, okay. yes. Okay. I have trouble with the word sent. Like uh, uh, God sent his son, okay. and in some way, John, uh, uh, Jesus sent Holy Spirit. Yes. So is there any particular order or purpose or the arrangement? Or? Yeah, so, so in the economy of God... The Father sends the Son, so they, they're all equal, and at the risk of making God sound like a committee, because that is not the theology, but they are equal, and they agreed, here's what we will do uh, to rescue humanity. The Son, who is equal to the Father, and the Spirit is equal to the Son, we, the Son, I will submit to the Father, Father will send me. And I will accomplish on the earth what needs to be accomplished. And then I will send the Spirit with my authority in the name of the Son to carry out and to impart to the people the, the product of what I achieved through my victory. So they're all equal. It's just, think of it, they're equal in substance. They're different in roles. So sending is a role. It has nothing to do with a person's value. Okay? So uh, I have four children. I could say, okay, Patrick, I need you to do this. Natalie, I need you to do this. Uh, Matthew, I need you to do this. Katie, I need you to do this. Now, they're all equal. They have different roles. I'm sending them all, but they have different roles. Okay? All right. Let's keep going. This is good. Before we move on to the third person of the Trinity, I want to hit the pause button, and pardon the pun, I want to flesh out some of the implications Um, of the second person of the Trinity, the Son, taking on human flesh. Okay, so this God taking on human flesh, that's called, the fancy word for that is called the incarnation. 
So as your outline says, letter A, the Bible affirms the humanity of Jesus. So the Bible affirms the humanity of Jesus, okay? Meaning, um, the Bible says, we learned last week, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And then John goes on to say in verse 14, the Word, who is God, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 1 Corinthians says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. It says in 1 Timothy, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So the Bible clearly affirms the humanity of Jesus. He wasn't an angel. He wasn't a ghost, some mysterious... He was a man. Okay? And B... The Bible affirms the divinity of Jesus. And that's what we've learned for the last couple of weeks, weeks three and four. Clearly, the Bible affirms the divinity of Jesus. He is called God, and he's given all the attributes. He's called Yahweh, he's called God, and he's given all the attributes of God, the creator, sustainer, all of that, okay? So C, therefore, the Bible affirms that Jesus was truly human and truly God. So the Bible affirms that Jesus was truly human and he was truly God. Now, here's where my diagram on the board comes in handy. So I'm glad whoever asked that question off the top asked it. Um, so we've got this green is the shared substance. Okay, so this is the, the nature of God. And meaning he, the, uh, divin- the uh, let's say, he, omnipresence. Uh, omnipotence, um, omnipotence, omnipresence, uh, what's the other omni? Pardon? Omniscience, did I not say that? Oh, I didn't know that. Here, did you get, see what I did there? Um, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, um, aseity, meaning that he has self-existence, um, uh, all those things are part of the nature of God that only God possesses. So here we have one God, so the green is the substance, the nature of God. One God, but three persons all sharing the same substance, okay? So God is, is one nature with three persons. But now here, look at this. Jesus is one person with two natures. Ooh. The blue represents the nature of humanity. So, so you can see this visually. I don't, maybe you're a visual person like me. This kind of stuff helps me. So God is one nature, three persons, and Jesus is one person with two natures. The Father doesn't, didn't take on a human nature. The Holy Spirit didn't take on a human nature. But in the incarnation, the person of the Son added humanity. He added the nature of humanity to his divinity. So he, the Bible affirms the humanity of Jesus. The Bible affirms the divinity of Jesus. So the Bible affirms that Jesus was truly human and truly God. So what are these two natures uh, that uh, Jesus possessed? Well, as your outline says, the Son already possessed a divine nature. The Son already possessed a divine nature. Uh, we quoted that just a moment ago when uh, um, Duane asked uh, his question. The Bible says in Philippians 2, 5 and 6, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, 
being in very nature God, today he was filled with the nature of God, who being in very nature God. Okay? So he already had the divine nature. That's not something, so the Bible establishes that. Being in very nature God. So keep going in your outline. So, so essentially what's happened here so that means Jesus already possessed omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence. He possessed all of those things, okay? So the person known as the Son, or the Word, or the Logos, he possessed all of these attributes. So the Bible says the Word was divine. Jesus was divine. And then it says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, okay? So the incarnation, as your outline says, was the experience of the Son adding a human nature to his divine nature. The incarnate, not right now, Dwayne. The son was the experience, uh, uh, the, the incarnation was the son adding a human nature to his divine nature. We keep reading that in Philippians chapter two. It says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, or we, as we learn, reached out for, because he already had it, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. So what he did was he already had the divine nature. And what he did was he added to the divine nature the human nature. Okay? So what is a human nature? Aristotle defined the human nature as a rational animal. And the church fathers actually essentially agreed with that definition centuries ago. A rational animal referred to the soul-body composite that is you and me. We are soul-body, soul-body composite together. You are a soul. You're a rational mind. You're a soul, a rational mind that dwells inside a body, which is your biological home. And your biological home, your body shares characteristics with other animals, especially other mammals. You're a mammal. Like it or not, you're a mammal. You're a rational mind that lives in the biological body of a mammal. That's why Aristotle and the church father said, okay, yes, we are a rational animal, to be very strict, precise about what human nature is. We're a rational animal. Separate from the other animals, we are rational. Meaning what? Meaning we have self-awareness. Uh, we have a self-direction. We have free will. We have uh, uh, intentionality. Okay? We're rational animals. Okay? So the Logos, or the Word, added a human body to his experience. The Word became flesh. So you, think of it this terms. You are a soul that lives in a body. Well, the mind, the soul of Jesus of Nazareth was the second person of the Trinity. So when Jesus walked the earth, his mind, his soul, was the person, the second person of the Trinity that took on humanity. So it's not as though Jesus was anybody, you know. Jesus was, it's not as though Don Pamphlin could walk around and then Jesus, the Spirit of God just comes upon Don Pamphlin and he is now the Son. Because the Spirit has imparted himself to Don. No, that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that the Son, the person of the Trinity... Because you know, otherwise, then we'd have Don, who's a separate person, and then another person of the, of the, of the Trinity comes and, and dwells with Don. That's not the incarnation. The incarnation is the mind, the person of the Son, 
puts on, takes on a body. And so just like you have a mind, a soul, and your soul isn't covered with a body, the mind of, of Jesus wasn't covered with a body. He is God taking on flesh. Okay? So Jesus of Nazareth was truly God and truly man. He had a divine nature. He was the same divine mind that always existed that God, and that created the universe. And he also had a human nature. This divine mind indwelt a truly human body at the moment of conception in the womb of Mary. Now, that brings some practical questions that are on your outline. If Jesus was God, he would have to be omniscient, all-knowing. Then how could he grow in wisdom? Because it says in Luke 2.52, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, favor with God and man. So how do you do that? Now, I'm about to share with you the best explanation that I've heard over the last 30 years. I'm not claiming that what I'm about to share with you is the way that it actually works. Okay? It may, it may very well be the way it works, but I can't say that for certain. What I can claim is that what I'm about to share with you is true to scripture and it's entirely rational. And why I say that is because a way to equip you, like when a Muslim or a cult member tries to tell you that the whole concept of the Trinity is unbiblical, irrational, and unworkable, I'm showing you, no, actually, here's a way that it actually works. It may not be the way it actually works, but here is a way it could work, okay? So I'm giving you a possible model that is entirely rational, it's feasible. So here's the question again. If Jesus was God, he would have to be all-knowing. That's true. It's part of the nature. Again, you can't have the nature of something without being that thing. So if you, it goes, the reverse works as well. If you are that thing, you have to have that nature. And so God is all-knowing. So if Jesus is divine, then he must have been all-knowing when he walked the earth. But how could he grow in wisdom? Because to grow means to have more of something today than I did yesterday. Well, omniscience means you are already all-knowing. Hey, Katya, what does that mean? How does that work? And Jesus didn't know who touched him the one time. He touched him. He said, who touched me? And he said he didn't know at that moment when he would return. Uh, he said only the Father knew. So what's up with that stuff? Here's an answer that works for me. As your outline says, there was a distinction between Jesus' two consciousnesses. His human consciousness, which grew and his eternal divine consciousness, okay? As your outline says, which he possessed, but voluntarily and temporarily suppressed in his subconscious. So he possessed it, but he voluntarily and temporarily suppressed it in his subconscious. Part of the humbling that he did in Philippians 2. So what are we saying here? Let's pause for a second. What are we saying? We're saying that Jesus... Otherwise, you get this bizarre concept of Jesus in the manger looking up at Mary and he knows quantum mechanics. No. I mean, uh, Jesus being a little boy knowing everything, that, that sounds odd, strange. It uh, doesn't sound rational. Um, so, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. But there's, that's, there's a whole debate over the centuries of what that word empty means. It can't mean that he gave up attributes because you can't do that. You can't give up attributes and still be God. So it, it's more he humbled himself. Um, he, he set aside the usage of things. He didn't give them up. Um, you can't do that. But what he did was he, you cannot use what you have. 
as a way of humbling yourself. And so how, what does that look like? How does that work? Well, the best explanation that I've heard is that, so you all have a subconscious. What does that mean? Right now, you know a whole bunch of things that is not at the forefront of your mind right now. You know, okay, think about what you're thinking about right now. Okay, what's your birthday? Okay, you weren't thinking about that a minute ago. It was in your subconscious. What city were you born in? What town were you born in? What's your mother's name? I mean, you could go on and on and on. All that's just pulled out of your subconscious. It's there, but it's pulled out. It's, it's, it's way back there. It's not at the forefront. It's not in your present mind. And so the, the, this philosophy is, is that Jesus possessed all this knowledge. It was there, but he voluntarily and temporarily suppressed it in his subconscious. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean Jesus had access to this stuff and didn't use it? Or does it mean that Jesus only accessed it if the Father allowed him to use it? Uh, I don't know. This model doesn't have an answer for that, nor does it have to. Either would work under this model. But the reality is that he, had, he possessed this stuff because he was God, but he, as part of his humbling, suppressed it temporarily, and it slowly was unveiled to him. So clearly by the age he was 12, he began to realize who he was. I don't think he knew that at two. But he began, it began to be unveiled to him. And there were still things, even as he walked the earth as, the, as aware that he was God in flesh, there were still some things that were in the, the back, in the subconscious, that he did not access. And so what he did was, he lived as an example for us where he relied on the Holy Spirit in partnership with him to direct him, to guide him, to relay information to him. And he said, that's why Jesus said, I only do what I see my father do. So he had submitted himself. This father is greater than I. Does that mean the father's better than him? No, they're one. But I humble myself, submitted myself to the father. And I'll only do what I see the Father do. And then after the incarnation, he says, you're going to return me to my former glory. But part of that humbling, which Paul is endorsing, is he humbled himself and he didn't demand to be treated as God. And he didn't actually experience the full experience of being God on the earth as part of his humbling, part of the incarnation, part of his sacrifice for us. Let's keep going and then I'll open up for questions. Next one was, did you often hear, and understandably so, it's a legitimate question. If Jesus was God, how could he be tempted? Since God cannot be tempted, it says in James. And of course, when the Bible says God can't be tempted, it doesn't mean that I can't try to tempt God. I can. It, what it means is God can't be successfully tempted, meaning God cannot be tempted to the point where he succumbs to sin. It really means God can't sin, is what it's saying. But right now I can say, okay, God, I tempt you to strike me with lightning. So it doesn't mean that God, someone can't externally, extrinsically try to tempt God. It means that God cannot be successfully tempted. He will not give in to sin. So, as it says in your outline, letter A, one of the things that Jesus voluntarily set aside in his subconscious was the awareness of his inability to sin. So this is crucial. Was Jesus able to sin? No. You cannot be God and have the ability to sin. So what, was Jesus able to sin? No, he was what's called impeccable. The impeccability of Christ. He could not have sinned. Okay. Um, so, th does that mean when he was tempted, it was all just a game? It was play acting? He was pretending he was tempted? No. 
it, part, one of the things that was set aside subconscious was the awareness of his inability to sin. So he was not aware that it was impossible for him to sin. So when he went through these temptations, as it's the next blank on your outline, when confronted with opportunities to sin, the temptations were real and not play-acting. They were real and they were not play-acting. So when he was tempted in the wilderness, they were legitimate, they were real. He had to rely on the power of the Spirit within him, his relationship with the Spirit. It's not as always thinking, oh, this is... You know, Teflon, I'm Teflon to this stuff. Don't even. No, he had to go through the journey of trusting, not aware that in the end it was impossible for him to sin. He had to walk through it. He grew in wisdom. He learned obedience, Paul said, or the writer of Hebrews said. Okay? So then the next blank is he had to choose to reject. He had to choose to reject the opportunity and rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit. So he had to choose to reject the opportunity, just like you and I do, and rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, ultimately, it was impossible for him to sin, but he didn't know that at the, time, at the moment. I think he knew it afterwards, probably, but not at that moment. The Bible says in Luke 4, Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan after he was baptized and was led by the Spirit into the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Hebrews 5, 7, 8. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. So he went through that process. He grew in his experience. He grew in his knowledge and understanding of who he truly was. All right. Wow, I got almost 10 minutes. So let's open it up for questions on what we've just talked about. Yeah, go, go to a microphone, please, sir. Thank you. I'm just getting emails from I people saying... I have a saying, question. Oh, we have it, okay. When you were talking about us being a mammal, but the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Whereas when you're talking about it, it just seems like there's only two main points of being a mammal. But... Clearly, God tells us that we are to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. And so it's a lot bigger picture than just being a mammal. Well, there's, so you're talking about the whole dichotomy, trichotomy. I'm not even getting into that. Uh, and I don't think, I don't, it, I don't, dichotomy. Same thing as that one, only different. Uh, there's dichotomy and trichotomy, meaning are we body, soul, spirit? Are we body and soul? That really doesn't affect anything we talked about. That's sort of a, an inside baseball debate. Um, personally, I, you know, I, I look at the soul and the spirit as sort of being two sides of the same coin, um, but it really doesn't affect. When we talk about a rational animal, it means you know, the soul or soul slash spirit inside the biological composite of a, of, a, of a mammal. That's what rational animal means. It means you have a rational soul-spirit combination or one and the other. You can make an argument for both, to be honest with you, um, whether that's one or two. Um, 
but that doesn't affect what we're talking about here. Yes, sir. When Jesus was upon the earth, this is omnipresence. God compromised. No, because omnipresence does not mean, it's not like God's a blanket who's spread out everywhere. Omnipresence biblically means that God is capable of acting at every point in the universe. Thank you. Okay. Yes. Yeah, Darren, some of these things that seem like they're contradictory, but they're not. It's like salvation. It says we were saved, we are being saved, and we're... We are saved, saved. yeah. And I like to say mathematically, you know, if, if somebody says... Five plus three is eight. Mm -hmm. And somebody might say, no, seven plus one is eight. But they're both true. Yeah. It's important to realize that they can both be true. Right, yeah. Or when people always, well, the Trinity, one plus one plus one equals three. Well, so mathematically, well, how about one times one times one equals one? I mean, you can play with math if you want. Yes, Bob. Yeah. Uh, I just did a, a search of the online Bible. The question was, does the Son of God appear in the Old Testament? Right. Doesn't. Sons of God does. Right. But nowhere in the nowhere does it say does son. It say son of yeah, God. Yeah. Thank you, Bob. Go to a microphone, my friend. You don't have to raise your hand. Just if you stand at a mic, I'm there. This, this is my second attempt. At this. <laughs> <laughs> Two's the charm, John. Okay. Uh, one of the things that has always uh, puzzled me, and it hasn't come up here this morning, so let me throw it out. When Jesus came to Nazareth and uh, in, the, uh, in the synagogue, he says, this day the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Okay. And then he made some points that they didn't like. And this is my question. They dragged him out of the town and were going to throw him off the hill. And it says... Jesus walked through the midst of them and got out. Now, what I want to know is with their anger, their determination, and Jesus not using divine power, how could he walk through the midst of them and leave them? Well, as I remember the situation, <laughs> I don't know, John, I wasn't there, so I don't know how it happened. <laughs> um, but clearly, somehow, I think there was... I, I think that's why the Bible frames it the way it does, that it wasn't his time yet. So in God's sovereignty, somehow, it just doesn't, it's like a detail that doesn't need to be filled in. Somehow, it came about that they weren't able to do this. And so the gospel writers often did that. They would just not give the details, which is why some people said, oh, well, you know, the gospels differentiate between how many people were at the tomb or how many angels. No, because one mentions two angels and one mentions one. Well, they can both be right. Just one was giving more detail than the other. They're not contradicting each other. So the gospel writers shared as much information as fit the, the narrative that they are trying to communicate. Other questions about what we've learned today? Now's your chance to end. No, we've had plenty here. <laughs> uh, I've studied this a lot, obviously. Yep. So, um, I, I have an issue with uh, your version of the, uh, Morphe. Uh, most translations don't say nature, just the NIV. And Literally means form. Like, yeah, form. Or, I mean, form can be understood in different ways, like status or, or authority or um, there's different ways. Context determines it, yeah. Uh, but anyway, well, so here's the context. Um, Philippians 2. Um, 
So what did you say it means in that context? Well, it's not what I say it means, it's what the scholars have. It's nature. It's a Greek, it was a Greek term for the essential, the outer, uh, the, well, I forget the, the exact words I gave the other week, but essentially it was the outer form which represents the inner essential attributes is what we talked about. So it's true to the inner set. So the outward reflects what's true inward, which is why the word nature is the best English translation. So uh, saying it means like the, the essential... It's not, doesn't just mean a shell. The outward reflects what's true inward. Okay. Essence is another so, word. So um, the, the issue I have with that is in, the, in just a couple of verses later. So are you saying that there's such a thing as the very inner nature of a bond servant? Like, so you're saying that yeah. you can, so you're just born bond servant. You can't help it. It's your nature. That's just, it's kind of like a, no, I think you're being a little. Like the caste system. I think you're being a little wooden with no, that translation. You're saying it's like the, the central nature, but the very, it talks yeah. about the nature of a bond servant. Yeah. And so it doesn't mean like the essential you. It just means you're you're acting like that. You're, you're taking on the, the the form of that. Another way of saying is the image. You're, you're looking like. No, but that's an option that doesn't give you. That's where you're, you're not arguing with me, you're actually arguing with the Apostle Paul. He used the word morphe, which means form, which means the outward appearance, which is true to the inner essence. So he's the form, no, please, you ask the question, let me answer. So it's the form of God, and then he also took on the form of a servant. So the outward, visible sign of a servant, but he also had the true heart of a servant, is all Paul's saying. It's like he had the true heart of God, the true essence of God, and the outward symbol of God, of all the trappings, and he also had the true heart essence of a servant, and he actually acted according to that. That's what he's saying. So he wasn't simply saying Jesus, who had the, the covering, who had the uniform of God, took on the uniform of a servant. No, that's not, that's not what it means. It's not at all what it means. So how do we imitate that? Then? Like, so we, we can be obviously what he was. Well, not Otherwise, completely. it's not an example. We can't, well... Because so we too, so his example, that's a fair question. His example was Jesus, who had all the attributes of God and still does, he didn't consider that something to be held on to or re demanded, treat me like God. No, he also took on the role and the heart of a servant. And he humbled himself to the point he allowed himself to be killed. You should follow that example. You shouldn't demand your rights, but you should serve others. Even though by right you don't have to be served, you should choose to serve anyway. That's what he's saying. Okay, over here. I just had a question about where in the Bible Jesus said the Father and I are one and how that relates to this. Yeah, I, the reference off the top of my head, I'm not sure it's in the Gospels. But people, yeah, it's in John somewhere. Five, John what? Yeah. And so... It's a debate. I don't really think it's a Trinitarian reference. I think it probably, it could be argued both ways. I think it, one, in, we're in unison, we're in unity, um, but that's why I didn't choose it. And scholars tend not to say that as a direct Trinitarian, you know, we're not one the same substance. That would be a bit of a stretch, I think. Great, folks. Next week, we look at the Holy Spirit. We've looked at the Father, the Son, now the Holy Spirit. And uh, we're beginning to land this thing, but we're not quite there yet.
God bless you. See you next week. <laughs>